while this is <clears throat> the second to last week of this study, this is chronologically, our, our passage tonight would be the last one in the sequence as Paul wrote them. Next week, our passage is Titus. And Titus was written before 2 Timothy. In fact, everything you have in your Bible written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from the, from the hand or scribe of the Apostle Paul, everything is before 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is the last writing of the Apostle Paul. So uh, one, one old pastor, a uh, friend of mine said that when you, when you read 2 Timothy, find a, find a recording of somebody sharpening an ax on a stone and play it in the background. Because that's the background, because when Paul writes 2 Timothy, his beheading is uh, at the hands of Nero's flunkies in Rome is drawing near. It's a very, very epitaph sort of book. Does that make it more important than the rest of what the Holy Spirit inspired? No, of course not. But it does, it does give us context. I'll zoom out a little bit. The passage is brief. I, I, I have time to flesh this out. And, and we always remember thinking biblically involves having a good orientation. And some of this is old hat to some of you. Some of it might be new. Um, as, the, as the book of Acts ends, and in the book of Acts we have sort of the biography of the, the salvation of the Apostle Paul, probably in the mid-40s A.D., and then his, his three missionary journeys, culminating in his arrest in Jerusalem after the three missionary journeys. He is held in Judah, not in Jerusalem. He's very quickly, after he's arrested in Jerusalem, he's moved to the capital of the Roman province of Judah, which was Caesarea over on the coast. That's where the, the Roman governors of the province, I mean, with great respect to the historical significant biblical significance of Jerusalem, if you're the Roman governor of Judah and you can choose as your residence that very crowded Jewish city stuck in that mountain valley or a place over on the Med where they actually built, an uh, Herod the Great had built an artificial peninsula. If you ever get a chance to visit Maritime Caesarea, the footprint of it is still there. So then the governor's mansion stood on this artificial peninsula so that out, out the windows of the governor's house, the view west was straight down the Mediterranean Sea to the Straits of Gibraltar. You couldn't see them, but you know what I mean, straight west. North is the island of Cyprus and the Turkish coast across the ocean. South is the coastline curving around toward Egypt. You got ocean views in three directions. You wouldn't live in Jerusalem either. Um, Caesarea was a, was a very cosmopolitan city, had a massive man-made port. The coastline there is smooth. And so in order to have a harbor, again, Herod the Great had built a massive jetty system enclosing an enormous artificial harbor. When Paul is taken prisoner in the book of Acts, he is transported to Caesarea by the coast and under two different governors, Festus and Felix, he is 
Felix and Festus. He is, well, now I'm second guessing myself. Two Roman governors that start with F. He is, he is held actually for a period of years on the, on the coast before finally he is sent to Rome. The book of Acts ends with Paul's arrival in Rome and what, what is called his first Roman imprisonment. The end of the book of Acts describes it. It's, it's house arrest. He's allowed to have people come and go. We know that during that arrest, he could, for example, receive financial gifts from his friends because it's during that arrest that he writes, for example, Philippians, where he's thanking the Philippian church for having sent him some money. So he was allowed to live and, and, and some degree of freedom in that first arrest. Sometime toward the end, the book of Acts ends with him in that first arrest. He is, he is released from that imprisonment and, and pursues some additional missionary activity. But by the mid-60s, he has been taken captive again. And that, give or take, A.D. 64, is when the uh, persecution starting in Rome under the crazy Emperor Nero flames up. The, the first organized sort of empire-wide assault on Christianity. Nero um, blamed a major fire in the city of Rome on the Christians. Some have theorized he started it himself just to have a reason because he just didn't like Christianity. And in that Neronian persecution, circa 64, 65, is when Paul is imprisoned again, this time to be executed. It is during that second Roman imprisonment that Paul writes 2 Timothy. Um, it's very autobiographical. It's very personal. I think it's very poignant. I, I, don't, I don't know that I will know. I don't know that I will know when it is the last time I will publicly teach the Word of God. I'm driving home on 75 in a little while. This could be it. Paul knew this was probably the last letter that he, that he would be sending to his friends. At least he seems to, because he, he, he makes statements like, I'm ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. Sounds like he knew he was about done. So with that in mind, for context, we come to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I zoomed out a little bit. The phrase we've been keying on is in verse 11. This saying is trustworthy, or the saying is trustworthy. That's what this series has been about. But I wanted to pick up the paragraph. Now, I theorized the first night of the series, and I, I hold this view. It's not, it's not a view that I would, I would go, to the, go to the mat over. I believe that Paul is flagging um, verbal formula, uh, catechism, that, that the church was using in these decades before the broadly circulating collection of writings that came to be your New Testament. I believe, um, again, <laughs> you're, you're centuries before printing presses. Handwritten copies haven't had time to, to, to populate much yet. And yet people are being discipled in the way of Jesus Christ. 
And I honestly, I believe they did it the way you and I would do it. They, they came up with, with shorthand ways of saying things, memorized formulations that they could, they could use to remind each other of crucial foundational truths. Now, that, that, that's one view of what Paul is doing when Paul says this is a trustworthy saying, that he's, that he's then invoking a sort of statement or catechism that was already in circulation. That's my view. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't hold it with you know, teeth, but it's also possible that it's just a turn of phrase, that Paul's saying the way you would say, and let me tell you something, boom. He's, he's just, that's very possible as well. Either way, something about underscoring is in view. Zooming back now to the paragraph. Remember Jesus Christ. I'm in 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things. And I'm going to stop at that paragraph there halfway through verse 14. All right. Roman numeral one. There's a command. Remember Jesus Christ. Now think about that. By this time, Timothy, the original recipient of this letter, has been a disciple of Paul's for more than a decade. He's accompanied Paul on a large part of the second missionary journey. He has been under the discipling ministry of the Apostle Paul. He has come to be um, the, the lead pastor, if we can use contemporary terminology, a, a leading elder, at least, in the, in the church at Ephesus. And you might recall, Ephesus is the place that Paul spent the longest time on any of his missionary journeys. He was in Ephesus for more than two years, Corinth a year and a half. And from Ephesus, from the lecture hall of Tyrannus, as you'll recall from Acts 19, a, a church planting missionary training center operated for two years so that pretty much all of Asia Minor heard the gospel. So Ephesus had become his train, and Timothy was with him all the way through that and emerged as Paul star pupil is probably not unfair. Um, Long-time disciple, excellent student, pastor of one of the strategic church plants of Paul's missionary career, Timothy, remember Jesus. You, you step through that quickly, and you go, well, yeah, of course. But 
it's, it's, almost, it's almost jarringly fundamental. Of all the advanced things that Paul would encourage Timothy regarding, of all the deep discipleship and hard work that has gone on, remember Jesus. Um, us. We, we get to do so much. We were, we were talking, I was talking earlier with, with Brother Mike Hess, who's teaching over in the Systematic Theology course tonight. We were talking about the, the Bible study tools that are available to us, the things that are three keystrokes away on our computers, the, the vast amount of information that we have such access to compared to any generation of Bible students or Bible teachers since forever. Um, all that we can do as a church, all the ways that we minister, all the ways that we, we get to, to delve in to God's word together. Remember Jesus Christ. The foundation, the cornerstone. Three things, sort of subpoints under that. Letter A, B, C, if you like outline. First, proven. Remember Jesus Christ, proven. Next phrase in the text, risen from the dead. Risen from the dead. I have been afforded the spectacular privilege later this spring to, our, our church has a marvelous partnership with the Word of Life Bible the Word of Life Bible Institute and the Word of Life um, camps in Budapest, Hungary. And I have, been, I have been invited to go over and teach a week-long apologetics course to the second year Word of Life Bible Institute students. And part of that invitation is developing curriculum. So I'm, I'm working now to develop a 15-hour apologetics overview curriculum for those students. By the way, teaching, teaching is... Jesus is my first love, my family is my second love, teaching is my third love, and it drops off way far after that. Those are the things that I love, and God is kind to me to give me opportunities to do that. But when we talk about Christian apologetics, and oh my goodness, the philosophies we can chase, and oh my goodness, what about the existence of evil? Well, you know, if there's no God, you wouldn't even know to identify evil. The very fact that you can ask the question about God and the existence of evil proves that there's a God. Because where in the world do you think you became aware of the existence of evil? A woodchuck doesn't know anything about evil. You know about evil because you're an image barrier of a God, you know? You can do all the apologetics in the world. And you can have all the exotic arguments around philosophies of apologia, all that sort of stuff. Jesus didn't stay dead. Deal with it. The, the great, big, apologetic boulder of the Christian faith, Jesus didn't stay dead. Amen. If you're a thinking Christian, and I bet you are, there are times when you have caught yourself scratching your head and going, I'm not certain how all that fits together. Uh, an author named Gary Parker wrote an excellent book entitled The Gift of Doubt. 
And his thesis in that book is having hard questions about how our faith, how our faith and how our life and how our place in this world all fit together. Sometimes, sometimes having things that could be characterized as doubt is not a bad thing. It's an invitation to wonder more and think more and praise more and be more thankful. Well, I never doubted a thing. You're lying. <laughs> I forgive you. There's something about our prideful spirit that wants to say, well, I'm beyond all doubt. When a tragedy hits you personally and you wonder about God's timing, when you pray and you pray and you pray and God takes a different course of action, of course you doubt. Of course you doubt. But looming behind all our doubts, Jesus did not stay dead. I've, done, I've probably done more funerals than you have, unless you're retired from ministry and were active in that for a few decades. I've done more funerals than most of you. So far, 100% of them have stuck. <laughs> I have a pretty good statistical model that tells me that people who die stay dead. I know one day they won't. But Jesus didn't take long at all. Remember Jesus Christ proven by his resurrection. Second, remember Jesus Christ prophesied. The offspring of David. He could have said, the offspring of, uh, well, not Solomon. The offspring of Eve as a biological descendant. He could have said, born in Bethlehem. The fact that the messianic title, son of David, applies to Jesus, the fact that Jesus is legally descended from King David through his father's bloodline and biologically descended from David through his mother's biological bloodline, evokes the entire library of messianic prophecy that is fulfilled in Jesus. If the resurrection of Christ is Christianity's strongest apologetic boulder, the astonishing catalog of fulfilled prophecy around his birth, around his life, around his death. By the way, that should give you confidence regarding prophecy about his return. He has fulfilled so much prophecy so far, the dominoes have fallen right the way they were supposed to. They will continue to do so. He's trustworthy. Remember Jesus Christ proven. Remember Jesus Christ prophesied. Remember Jesus Christ proclaimed. The end of verse 8, as preached in my gospel. Timothy. It seems, having survived stoning, having survived imprisonments, beatings, 
what the inhabitants of Malta thought was going to be a deadly snake bite. Near drowning, it seems now my surviving days are drawing to an end. Remember Jesus that I preached about. Carry the message forward. I tell my wonderful high school students that I very much come to love. I tell them the first week of school, way back in August, that if I could have one central objective fulfilled by the time they graduate, and in August of their senior year, they still think May of their senior year is a ways off. <laughs> you and I know better, right? By the time you get to August of year one, May of the next year is about two weeks, right? I tell them if I can have one thing, if they can graduate high school with one big takeaway from at least my part of their senior year, that they are in a story that began 2,000 years ago and their chapter is now. It is the same story. It is the same narrative. It is the same carry the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It is the same you will be my witnesses. The mission is continuing. The journey is continuing. The gospel is continuing. The book of Acts ends but we're in about volume 99 of that same story right now. And here I think Paul is saying to Timothy directly and through Timothy to us, my time to proclaim the gospel on this earth is drawing to an end. Yours isn't. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember the proof. Remember the prophecies and remember the proclamation. I was gently challenged not long ago. And I accept the gentle challenge. It, it was well-intentioned and sweetly delivered. Why doesn't our church, and they, 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 in some part me, preach more against the specific evils of our day? It's a fair question. It's a fair question. The answer I shared with the sweet sister is, every time I draw a breath, I can only get out so many words. And the answer to the problems of our day is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen. Calling sinners to repent and believe the gospel. I'm not going to chase whatever headline came across the news feed this week. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to call sinners to repent and I'm going to teach the word of God. There are plenty of wonderful people doing the current event stuff. God has not called me to that. God has not called our teaching team to that. We're going to remember Jesus Christ, Amen. crucified, prophesied. And if you want to talk about how a biblical worldview applies to some given current event issue, well, come on by. We'll open up a Coke Zero, put our feet up on the coffee table, and chase that if, that, if that's something that... that, that and, and we have our occasional hot topic nights and those kind of things that we get to, 
we get to look at some of that. But the spine, the spine of your life's message is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what matters most. That is that, is that to which you bear witness. That is the message that means heaven or hell. Nothing scales to that except the gospel of Jesus Christ. What about, what about the political situation? 4% of planet Earth lives in the United States of America. That means 96% don't. And if you think most of what God is concerned about is the politics of 4% of the population of the planet Earth, most of whom are going to hell, I would challenge you on that. Without much of an apology, I would challenge you on that. I just invite you to consider that, especially as we get into one more wacky political year. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right? Amen. I'm seeing enough smiles and nods that I know it's not going to be Russell Howard and him crucified. That's good. <laughs> a command. Remember Jesus Christ. Roman numeral two, a cost. A cost. Verse 9-10. <clears throat> As preached in my gospel, comma, verse 9, for which I am suffering. I love his forthrightness. I love that he doesn't say I'm in jail because God has failed me. He doesn't say I'm in, I'm in jail because God is punishing me. I wonder what I did wrong that things have gone so badly for me now. There's none of that. There's none of that. I have down the years caught hints of a mindset that says if things are going well for you right now, well as you would define them, that is the blessing of God and, and isn't that wonderful? If things are not going well for you, you need to find out what God is punishing you for. It's kind of the Job's three friends mindset. Things aren't going well for you, you need to find out why you have displeased God because your life is not fun at this moment. You need to reject that mindset entirely. Paul has been staunchly faithful and ab not absolutely obedient. Nobody but Jesus pulls that off. Staunchly faithful, obedient. He has represented the gospel. He has stood where he needed to stand. He has proclaimed. He has traveled. He has planted churches. He has told people about Jesus and he's about to die because of it. And he knows it. Bravo. Bravo. One of the things that's so disgusting about the horrific misrepresentations of the so-called health and wealth gospel, and it's lightweight version, Jesus always wants me giddy gospel, is that it just absolutely takes the word of God and turns it on its head. I am pleased to have many days when things are going great. And I am thankful on such days. But I have days when things are not going great. And of course, if I'm under the chastising hand of God, he's not going to hide that from me. What kind of loving parent punishes you without you understanding why you're being punished? I have never experienced the chastising of God without being real clear on what I've done wrong. 
Paul is in his court to make his punishment clear when you're under his chastisement. But he's got no problem saying, all right, Russell, hang on. For your good and my glory, this next set of circumstances is going to be no fun at all. Again, Paul is not in jail about to lose his head because of a lack of faithfulness. As preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. I'm here because of the gospel. That, that alone does it for the happy health and wealth message. Unless Paul did something so horribly wrong, he doesn't even understand what he did wrong, which is balderdash. That suffering has led to endurance. He, he exclaims in praise, the word of God is not bound. The word of, he's just told Timothy, remember the gospel that I preached. And then he reminds Timothy, the word of God is not chained up in this prison with me. You have it. People you disciple have it. The written word of God wasn't fully gelled yet, not by the A.D. 60s. But the spoken word of God, the living word of God, Jesus, the resurrected lamb, those things are alive and they're immune to chaining. Pa Pastor Russell, do you, believe that, do you believe that persecution could get worse for Christians? Oh, let me help you. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. If you doubt it, you've got your head buried way deep in the sand. Well, what does that mean? It means we will proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, what if they won't let you? Well, as long as I control the connection between my brain, my mouth, and my lungs, and you control the connection between the, your brain, your mouth, and your lungs, there's no such thing as won't let you. There's no such thing. They cut your lower jaw off, and then maybe, uh, uh, uh. but as long as your heart, your lungs, your brain, and your mouth are connected, the gospel is unbound. Well, yeah, but we could get in trouble. What history have you not read? Of course we can get in trouble. The church has been at its strongest when the risks were real. Adrian Rogers used to say there's nothing wrong with the church in North America that a few decades of hard persecution wouldn't fix. Now, I'm not asking for it. I'm no masochist. But I, I wonder how much persecution it would take for the church in North America to see a real revival. Because let's face it, men, women, we've had it pretty easy for a very long time. When your idea of persecution is your employer won't let you put up a Christmas tree on your desk. And you, and you call that persecution. The saints down the ages roll their eyes at you, right? The gospel's not changed. And that... that that cost, that suffering has led to endurance. Verse 10, therefore I endure everything. I remain in the place of faithfulness. Why? The mission. For the sake of the elect. Now some of y'all hear the word elect and you go, ah! God is saving people. God is saving people. The elect is that set of people that God's going to save. It, it doesn't have to be some great big mossy, scary, 
repugnant, whatever, emotional response. It's a fairly common word in New Testament usage. I am enduring what I am enduring because God is calling to himself a people. And if my faithfulness can play a role in how God is doing that, I will endure what I have to endure. There's a cost. If we are in the story of the New Testament as the chapters have come down the centuries, we should expect a cost. I love what, what Brother Danny taught us Sunday morning about the parable of the Good Samaritan. That parable is my least favorite of Jesus' parables because the bad guys in that parable are highly organized religious workers with extraordinarily good time management skills. <laughs> that parable has stung me every time I've ever heard it taught. Because I know what it is to go, man, I got, I got so much important God stuff to do, man. I wish I could help, but I've got to go over and do some important God stuff. <laughs> Which is the bad guys in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? The villains. Jesus could have cast, Jesus was writing a fictional story. We know that. That's what a parable is. Jesus could have cast that story and made a big point about the, ver the, the hospitable Samaritan without adding the details of he put the guy on his own donkey, he took the guy to the inn, he, he, he put a, took a pretty good chunk of money out of his own pocket, and then told the innkeeper, and whatever else it takes, I'm good for it. Those details aren't needed for the story to still have a great deal of punch about the ethnically despised person being the one person that was willing to love. He props up his central point with the supporting point, by the way, and love is costly. Engagement is costly. Following Jesus will disrupt the fire out of whatever not Jesus plan A you think you have. Your, your not Jesus plan A for how you're going to use your time. You're not Jesus, plan A, for how you're going to use your money. You're not Jesus, plan A, for how you're going to spend your life. You've caught on by now, I hope, that Jesus will mess with that. He's not interested in your plan A that doesn't take into account that he is your king. I endure for the sake of the mission because God is calling out a people for himself and I'm in the pool of those he's using to do that. <laughs> Finally, we get to what I'm supposed to have started with. <laughs> At least I'm consistent, Wade. Roman numeral three, the conditions. The saying is trustworthy. And a lot of your printed Bibles sort of set this up like it's a poem. The Greek underneath this is extremely rhythmic. It's got, it's got a metrical feel. 
And so this could have been a, a teaching rhyme. It could be an early hymn lyric. I believe that Paul is invoking language Timothy would have known. I have, I have no problem in this case, not all of the faithful sayings set up like poetry. This one does. And I have, I have, a, I have a feeling, guess, that it's, a, that it's a lyric, that this is something that the early church was singing. And Paul said, you know, it's like this thing we sing. Conditions. Number one, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. His name was Dale Palmer. He was the legendary longtime pastoral care minister at Bellevue when I was a old 20 and young 30, something on that staff. And if you were gonna baptize people at Bellevue, and we all got in that rotation from time to time, your first training session was with Pastor Dale. I don't know how old he was when I knew him. I was on that staff from 89 to 94. He was at least as old as I am now, maybe a little bit older. All right, Brother Russell, Russell, here's how you stand. Here's how you handle it if they're taller than you are. Here's how you handle it if they're a little tiny child. Here's how you coach them so that when you, if they're, if they're smaller than you are, when you put them under, how you keep their feet from popping up. You're dunking somebody. There's all kind of, Dale was all kind of nuts and bolts. And what Dale always said we are buried with Jesus by baptism unto death and raised to walk in a brand new life. And if you've been around McGregor and you've heard me and most of the others of us baptize, we say pretty much that same thing. Now, I don't know who taught Dale Palmer to say that. It's a, it's a, it's a semi-quote of a couple of different passages. But there's something there. <coughs> When you, when you gave yourself to Christ, and baptism didn't save you, baptism commemorates and celebrates your salvation, doesn't cause it. Buried in Jesus in his death, raised to walk in new life. If we have died with him, we also will live with him. How much of the old man or old woman is dead in you? How, how thoroughly dead is the old you? Not enough. Not enough. Not enough. Someone has said regarding Romans 12, as we present ourselves a living sacrifice, the problem with the living sacrifice is it wants to hop off the altar. <laughs> you know, that living sacrifice, you got to keep it tied down to the altar. Our future glory as we live forever with Christ, is connected to our dying to self as we followed him. And yeah, we don't get it right until we, we meet him. But it is, it is a drive. It is a desire. It is a inclination in the believer, a compulsion in the believer. The followers of Jesus Christ follow Jesus Christ.
And if there is not in you a compulsion to follow Jesus Christ, check your salvation. Check whom you are trusting. He's not your king. He's not your savior. That savior and Lord is not a two-step thing where you go to the buffet and pick the one you like. He is savior of those to whom he is Lord. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. <coughs> Second, if we endure, and he just said, verse 10, I endure. So the value of endurance is very much on the soon to die Apostle Paul's mind here, unsurprisingly. If we endure, we will also reign with him. <coughs> One of the imbalances that can creep in, especially among folks like us, and this is our church's confession, we do hold to the eternal security of the believer. If you do not hold to that, you are out of step with the confession of faith of this church, and that's a problem if you're a member. McGregor Baptist Church holds that those who are born again are born again forever. It's a formal position held by our church. One difficulty that can arise is if we teach eternal security and fail to teach that salvation is transformational, we can take non-transformed people and begin to laminate and lacquer them in layer after layer after layer after layer after layer after layer of confidence in a profession they in fact never made. Salvation is in all cases permanent. Salvation is in all cases transformational. God help us. I think at times we have, we have taught a permanent salvation that isn't necessarily transformational and we've got lost people embracing an eternal security to which they have no claim. If we endure, he, we will reign with him. And we will endure if we are his. Yes, we are ultimately saved because of his grip on us, but we also are holding tight to him. I'm not saying we're perfect. Of course, you and I both know we aren't. I'm not saying that we don't have fits and starts and failures and successes. He's going to talk about that in two more lines but we endure. Third, if we deny him. Jesus said it. You deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. Same exact idea here. Apostasy will yield condemnation. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Self-evident what that means. There is no means to be right with God other than to bow the knee before Jesus the Son. Jesus the Savior. You um, have no other means to be right with God. I'm uh, eyeball deep this week in, uh, in preparing Genesis 14 for Sunday morning and contemplating the contrast in that chapter between the greater king of Salem and the lesser king of Sodom, both of whom Abram meets for the first time in this chapter. 
great king of Salem, Melchizedek, offers Abram a blessing and reminds Abram he hadn't done anything. Blessed is God who did what you just had happen. You are blessed because of a faithful God. King of Sodom says, hey, you can keep all the stuff that you recovered in your, in your raid on the kings of the east. See it? Melchizedek, king of Salem, is the way of grace, of blessing you didn't earn. King, the king of Sodom is the way of earning. I'm going to get what I deserve. Ooh, praise God, I'm not. Praise God, I'm not. Don't you argue for what you deserve. Lord, help you should you ever win that argument. Hmm. If we deny him, he'll deny us. And then I love this fourth line. At first, it doesn't seem to fit. You expect him almost to say, and if we are faithless, boy, will he zap us. <laughs> But he's already said, if we've died with him, we'll live. If we endure, we'll reign. If we deny, we're in trouble. This line is, if we struggle, if there are times when our faith isn't adequate, when there are times when the, when the questions seem to outweigh the confidence, He is faithful. You know, born again friend, that you're not mostly born again because of anything you did. Salvation is of the Lord. You are saved because he saved you. Your confidence I um, get to participate in my share of elder interviews with incoming members of our church. And I get, I've, I've heard, uh, and others of you that are on the elder body, there's few elders in the room. Steve, you've, you've heard some of these stories. Wade, Mike, I, uh, Omar, I'm probably missing somebody and that's on me. Uh, at any rate, sometimes we ask, we ask the, the, the incoming prospective member. Hey, tell us, tell us your life story with a, with a special emphasis on, on your, your, your spiritual development. Sometimes they just rattle off the Sunday school script. That doesn't mean they're not born again, right? But I have learned to not be comfortable with someone who rattles off the Sunday school script when they're describing their salvation experience. I'm gonna ask some follow-up questions, especially if it sounds like a script. But sometimes, I was, I was in my 20s and my life was a wreck and I went through a crazy dark period and I, could go from now till breakfast about all the horrible things that I was into and all the horrible things that I caused other people and other people caused me and, and somewhere in that dark, dark chapter, I cried out to Jesus. And I couldn't tell you what day. 
I might not even be able to tell you what year, but I know today I'm trusting Jesus Christ and his grace and nothing else for the state of my soul. Ooh, my heart just jumps. Because see, I don't need a date, time, and postmark. If you have, I remember the very, I, don't, I can almost get the date. I can get down to the week because it was a, a, a certain crusade that was on TV that week. And history has allowed me to go back and figure out what week it was that I asked Jesus to come into my heart. I know within a week of when I was saved. But I am not trusting what I did for my salvation. I am trusting what Jesus did for my salvation. If, you, if your salvation is, I'm, I'm going to pick on some terminology. It's Wednesday night. Y'all can ride with me. If your salvation confidence is based on why, pray that prayer in a minute. You'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you meant it hard enough. John, I missed you as an elder earlier. That's no, no insult intended. My brother, you and I are doing interviews together right now. 15,213 days every day. God bless you, buddy. But you're not trusting some words you said 15,000 days ago. You're trusting a Lord who saves because I've heard you tell the story. Because guess what? You're going to have days when you're faithless. That's what the line four of this if then is saying. You're going to have days when you want to shake your fist at the sky and say, God, I don't know what you're up to and what I do know, I do not like. And it seems to me that your universe would be better run than the way you're running it. I don't know if you've ever gone through a chapter as a believer where that's what your prayer life sounded like, but by God's grace, I have. I have ranted and I have raved and I have doubted and I have exhausted myself. And at the end of all of that, he has been faithful. That's what line four is. Don't you fail to get real with him in your prayer when you're hurting, when you're frustrated, when he's not running his universe in a way that suits you. Because see, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. It's one of the most staggeringly valuable promises in the New Testament for the child of God. Brother Russell, what if there's a day that I just don't get it right? Let me help you. There's never been a day that you did. See, one of my mentors is fond of saying, you'll feel so much better once you give up hope. <laughs> it's, it's, it's taken me becoming something of an old man. And if you're older than me, I'm not calling you old. But for me, it's taken me becoming something of an old man to realize how right my friend is. Because it's not going to get better until he comes and makes it better. It's not going to go the way I want it to go. It's a staggering percentage of the time. He is faithful. He is faithful. Four, he cannot deny himself. What a staggering theological assertion. Titus 1-2 says he cannot lie. That's a, a product of his inability 
to deny himself. Basically what that means is the living God cannot act in ways the living God would not act. God cannot be ungodly. That's why his holiness and justice require a sacrifice for sinners. He can't give us a pass. The price has to be paid. If he could deny himself and be just a few clicks less holy, then Grandpa God could just invite everybody to come to heaven. Kind of country music God. <laughs> Civics God, you know. But the God who is is absolutely holy. And a lack of justice is something he's not capable of. And I say that he's not capable. I'm saying cannot. I'm using the same sort of language Paul is using. Right? Be very, very careful when you start talking about things God's not capable of. It's a very short list. But the heart of that very short list is he cannot deny himself. He cannot do that which is inconsistent with his own character. Now, he will not. Wonder of wonders, he cannot. He cannot act contrary to his nature. By the way, neither can you. You'd still be lost if he hadn't saved you in spite of your lostness. And now that you have been given a new nature, you will act consistent with that new nature if it's there. Tendentially. The saying is trustworthy. Remind them of those things. I hope I have. <laughs>